there's so much I love about being a chef. It's, it's really is it's like the, the most amazing um, occupation that gives you so much. And it's, it's, it's amazing to see that people in, within the industry are really trying to push to make it even better as well. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading to somewhere that I wouldn't, wouldn't actually mind clicking my fingers and transporting myself to right now. Uh, Bangalore on the New South Wales South Coast to chat to Chef Simon Evans. Simon is originally from Wales, but he is really focused on thinking hard about what it means to cook Australian food. Simon, great to have you on the show. Welcome to Dirty Linen. Thanks, Dan. Tell us about what you're doing there at Bangalore. Um, just trying to cook some really tasty food, really, but um, my focus is always sort of um, local, native, wild, what we can get uh, in, in, the, in the local area and what's sort of grown there historically. So, so that's always kind of my focus. So we try and use lots of forage ingredients, lots of wild ingredients, lots of native things. Um, and, and try and put them on, on the plate in a, in, a, in a way that's sort of recognisable and, and, and delicious. That's always got to be the, the focus of, of whatever you're doing, whether you, if you have a sort of a, a idea if you want to use these ingredients, you still want to turn them into something delicious. And with um, native Australian ingredients and a sort of a more Western palate, that can be a challenge at sometimes. So what are some dishes that you've got on the menu now that really sort of speak to what you're doing? Um, we've got... Um, we just try and we try and use really good stuff. So we've got some amazing lamb. Obviously, spring's coming on the south coast, um, and then just putting it with with some some other sort of local things. We've got that with some with some local seaweed um, that we make a little sauce with. It's almost kind of a, a, a dashi using Australian seaweeds. Um, we've got some some quail with a little pepperberry to kind of spice it up. Um, we've got um, preserved um, sunrise limes. Um, in the sort of same way you do kumquats on a, a little kind of lemon dessert at the moment as well. So we're just, just trying to kind of work in those local native, um, and there's always lots of forage things on the menu. We're, we're about 50 metres from the from the beach and from the dunes, and there's a absolutely amazing array of, of salt bush and, and turkey rhubarb and pig's face and all sorts of kind of uh, salt-tolerant plants we get in Australia um, that kind of are spread across the menu as, as, as garnish and as ingredients. And, I mean, you've been in Australia, I think, for about a decade now, am I right? Yeah, just over, yeah. Wow, so happy anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, wild 10 years. <laughs> tell, us, um, tell us, you know, what you sort of found when you got here 10 years ago, just in terms of the way that Australian kitchens related to native ingredients specifically and, and how, you know, what your thought process was. I mean, we've come a massive way. I mean, I mean, I only really came over here for for a, what I thought would be a, a bit of a holiday and a, a year on a working holiday visa, and probably I go home then. So I didn't quite expect to to, to spend a decade here and, and and run kitchens and open kitchens. But um, I, I remember also asking the question all the time of like, what's what's Australian food? Um, which I mean, I still ask myself that <laughs> quite often. Um, but people would I get answers from from shitties to lamingtons to oh it's sort of Asian food, um, so so I, I never really got an answer for that. And then I, I remember we we got some and and just I sort of just left it there and had, had no um, no information or education about about the sort of the historic history of Australia and the, the culture of um, indigenous cooking and ingredients. So so I just sort of went about went about my day-to-day jobs until so we we got some lemon myrtle in i remember someone just saying oh that's a native and i was like oh okay there is there is native ingredients then so cool 
Um, and from there, it's just a sort of slow, steady progression. And then I think you'll see right around the time Noma came and um, and sort of Jock Zonfrillo doing his thing in South Australia with the Rana, that, that kind of became more prevalent. And we sort of started seeing more and more um, of these ingredients and, and things like magpie goose was, was the sort of uh, the big ingredient of, of 2016, 2015, 2016. Um, so, and then became more supplies. Then we get hands on more things and start experimenting and see what these ingredients actually were. But, it, but it's, it's come a, a, a long way. It's, it's sort of stagnated a bit in the last couple of years, I think, um, because of all the, all the logistical dramas we're having. But um, yeah, we're still not quite where, where other countries are in kind of embracing their native produce, but, but we've, we've come a long way in 10 years. Um, and I mean, tell me where the, this whole passion for local started for you. I mean, uh, tell us about a bit, bit of the background in Wales. Yeah, I mean, so it's funny that the local in the UK is, is quite a different concept to Australia. So, like, local in the UK is, like, the field across the road from the restaurant. Like, that, that's, oh, it's really local. Um, here, it's obviously being a, a much, much larger country. You kind of, it's, 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 it's within New South Wales. Is that local? And you kind of, well, sort of, like, you, you'll still claim that on a menu. So, uh, yeah, in, in, in Wales, the, the first restaurant I worked at, we were everything was around us like the the beef was in the field next to the restaurant like the cows you could see the cows from the restaurant sometimes um the the river we used to get fish from a small part of that flowed underneath the restaurant which sounds just ridiculously idyllic now looking back on it and probably didn't didn't appreciate the time as quite as much but yeah we, we just used local stuff and it was always empowered to use what was um what, what grew around us um and I did, did a stage with um, David Everett Mathias at Le Champignon Sauvage in Cheltenham, and he, he was kind of really one of the first people to start foraging um, and to make it kind of a big part of his, his two Michelin star restaurant. Um, and, and that was a big eye opener of how to use wild ingredients in a way that wasn't just tokenistic. What kinds of things would, be, would you be foraging for at um, Champignon Sauvage? Uh, so, I mean, lots, lots of mushrooms in Wales. It's just like, just, there's quite a lot of similar things like oxalises and sorrels and um, some wild roots and woodruff and there's some, some kind of uh, very typically named um, British things like hen of the woods and all these kind of funny things like that. But it was just it was understanding what they actually tasted of and actually tasting these ingredients when you were picking them because they do change quite rapidly. Um, and you know, if it's rained the day before, if it's been sunny for a week, these things change. So actually, actually understanding how they taste rather than just picking them and using them um, for the sake of it, actually understanding what their flavor profile is and what they're going to work well with and what they're going to go nicely with. Um, so that they were all kind of spread across the menu, and it was um, and it's, you know started with him from a from the sort of the the, the recession in the the early nineties in the UK of, of not being able to afford these. Um, expensive Michelin star level ingredients you had you had to kind of have at the time, um, so it kind of started in necessity and then became his 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 thing kind of in the early nineties. So, you know, pre Noma uh, foraging um, exploits. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I suppose some of the bucolic visions of restaurants in the UK that I have include that you know someone comes to the back door with a brace of grouse mm. that they've just shot in the woods I mean it was like, I <laughs> yeah. suppose there is this sort of heritage of wild foods um in a place that you know we perhaps sometimes think about as quite tame yeah the, yeah I mean that, that happened as well we, we I remember one day 
um, a guy who was a, a really a fisherman for us just bought 12 woodcocks, like small little tiny game birds to the back door. And we spent our, our break between lunch and dinner plucking them in the back. Um, and, and a lot of it does come down to the size of the country. It's a lot harder for for someone to have that you know, closeness to your restaurant where they can just drop them off. So, which is kind of, is a nice thing about being on the South coast where you, you can, we, you know, we do have some of our suppliers dropping off their produce, which is, which is nice because we, you know, we've got it all, all around us, but um, it's, we still haven't quite embraced wild meats in this country, possibly because of the, the amount of beef, the amount of lamb, um, amount of pork we have available and, it, and it's been cheap historically that um and we don't have that history and then also that kind of um you know that 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 racism really towards towards our native wild meats and, and you know kangaroos only becoming legal to eat in, in 1993 i think it was um and there's still like lots of lots of wild birds and things that we, we've got sort of no interest in eating and, and it, you know it took um it, it took obviously like you know, daniel motlop from south something wild and, and richard gunner to re- really push to to get you know magpie goose onto restaurants and it's still something that hasn't been taken up. So we, we, we don't really have that, that need or the want for it so much in this country, which is, which is a bit of a shame, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, I, one of the reasons, I guess, is um, that a lot of those animals are protected and there is a lot of regulation even now. Yes, we can eat kangaroo, but, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to get a licence and to... To, and, an, and get to get an abattoir that'll process it for human consumption. Mm. I know that's it's definitely pretty hard in Victoria to get local kangaroo to eat. Um, what is the supply chain for magpie goose? Uh, so, so something wild who are based in Adelaide. Um, they they're the only company who have a commercial license. They they wild catch them in 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 Larrakia country, which Dan Motlop's from, um, and. Yeah, an amazing bird, and I mean, it, it was a it was a push from, um, you know, from from the Noma pop up coming here, and, and um, to, to actually to actually make that kind of happen, really. Um, and yeah, and again, it, there was lots of uh, lots of loop, lots of bureaucracy, and and hoops to jump through, and, and stuff to fill in, which I think was the, was the hard part of it. But um, so so obviously, yeah, there's, there's definitely there's definitely barriers um, to, for, for as well as well as the kind of the want and the need and there needs to be supply for there to be demand. So there's definitely a, a lot, lots of things in the way. Um, yeah, and um, I know that that's an Indigenous-owned business, but so much of the native food industry in Australia is not Indigenous-owned, which is yeah. a massive issue. I mean, how do you, I suppose, negotiate that and think about that when you're sourcing Indigenous ingredients? Yeah, I think something like, I mean, I hear, hear quotes between 3 and 5% of the... Um, you know, billion-dollar native food industry actually goes to indigenous people, so it's a tiny amount, and it's um, it's a massive shame because th- th- that's where the the knowledge and the and the sort of context of these ingredients lie. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's difficult. So we do try to um, buy from Aboriginal-owned companies or part of Aboriginal companies um, as much as possible, and we, we're always trying to. Keep, keep doors open with, with people of like if if you produce something or if if you if you can set logistics to get me something like I will buy it I will use it um, like I will, I will I will preserve I'll learn I'll I'll, I'll pickle I'll, I'll I'll make garums I'll I'll take as much as I can and I'll and I'll get onto the menu somehow anyway so being kind of open to it and being willing to learn 
Um, and then seeking out these companies as well. There's kind of um, a sort of a black fishing term of, of companies appearing just as well. So, so most of the time it's, it's, it's talking to, to you know, people in the industry um, to try and find out who, you know, what's the best way to go about supply. But it's, it's difficult. And I think the, the industry is, is kind of retracted as well over the last couple of years. So we were getting much better supply of things, you know, three four years ago than we are now so that's kind of a, a challenge in itself mm, yeah well i think being sort of ingredient led is is really important and definitely mm. i suppose um if you've got that flexibility in the way you create menus and and cook then it's easier to be responsive to what people are able to provide rather than feeling like you just need to yeah tick stuff off an order sheet and have that consistency that so many um, restaurants and chefs are used to working with it's just a different dynamic yeah, isn't it this, this kind of conversation i have with suppliers all the time and i try and, and there's always that that push and pull of like i i want uh, you know I want a hundred racks of lamb a week, but I'm trying to work with small suppliers who aren't processing that's me lamb. So it's like, okay, I'll use half of that. And then I'll need some shin as well to bulk that dish up. So it's all kind of that, that back and forth of, of what, what they can provide and what, what I want and, and sort of trying to meet somewhere in the middle that kind of works for everyone. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's so interesting because of course, yeah, the, the lamb does have a shin as well. So it probably makes sense. Um, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, back to magpie goose, um, you know, most people probably haven't tried it and wouldn't really have much of a sense of what it's like as a, as a, as a product. Can you give us a bit of insight? Yeah, so um, my restaurant Kavo in Wollongong that we, we closed up to COVID, unfortunately, we, we had, I think we were sort of only one of the only restaurants at the time using magpie goose, um, so that's whole birds anyway. Um, and that, that was from building up a relationship with the guys at Something Wild and, and um, you know, getting them down here and we'd do dinners together and take, going out foraging together and things like that. And then we sort of got a, a good weekly supply of it. Um, but yeah, it's the name probably doesn't help. I think we there was someone wrote an article about us one time and said that we serve magpie, comma goose, and then something else. So <laughs> it hasn't been um, maybe not the best name. And people are like, is it a magpie? And it's it's a it's a it's a goose uh, with sort of black and white plumage. Um, really gamey, really lean, really dark meat. Um, very little fat on it absolute nightmare to cook um, it like goes from being completely raw to to being like a, a bunch of bands in, in seconds um so but we really wanted to put it on the menu um we really wanted to use it uh, so we sort of managed to work out ways between between lots of lots of brining and salting and smoking and cooking over coals and um and, and various ways to to use every, the whole bird up as well so that the, the there's nothing on the wing there's, there's barely any leg to it so we're making sort of sausages at the leg um but so it's an amazing flavor and it really kind of smell it really sort of smells and tastes of australia it's got a real kind of um native uh looks like a wild herb kind of native thyme um uh it's almost like eucalypt kind of taste and aroma to it it really, really sort of it's got it's almost got terroir um to take a word from the wine the, the wine industry um, so yeah, it, it's such an amazing taste, and such a, it was such a sort of privilege to be able to serve it as well. Um, and again, I think yeah, price, logistics, supply, and you don't really see it much anywhere at the moment. I think that whole idea of terroir when it comes to um, ingredients is something we're going to be speaking a lot more about. I mean, it's um, yeah, the food that's grown in different places tastes tastes like the place and I've, I've definitely heard it uh, you know people speak of it more with grain recently so I feel like it is a conversation we're going to 
we're going to keep having. So, yeah, it's nice to hear you speak of it like that. I guess especially like the, the guys that saw Black Duck Foods doing, I'm not sure if you're aware of those guys, um, like with all the native grains as well and, and you know, things that are sort of supposed to grow in this country. And I guess, yeah, you can, almost, you can talk more about terroir with things that are sort of uh, that don't have to be forced to grow in this country. Simon, let's talk a bit about Bangalay and, you know, the fact, you know, their villas, people stay there. What's it like sort of looking after um, food for people who are coming specifically to eat or people who are there for a different kind of experience, perhaps just there to relax or, um, you know, have a massage every day or whatever people do when they've got that kind of time and money? Yeah, yeah I know. What, what's what the, do people do when they have time off and relax? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, no I've, idea. I've heard about it. But, yeah, it's, it's um, the wrong type of podcast for that, isn't it? Hospitality podcast. Yeah. What's the, <laughs> what's the dynamic there with creating menus and feeding people? Um, there's always a balance it's amazing to have the obviously have the rooms because we're in a, a you know fairly secluded spot. Um, so the idea of sort of restaurant with rooms regionally, I, I think, works really well because it's the it's, you know you, you access is the is the is half the problem with regional restaurants. So having rooms on on site and and houses in the village is amazing. But obviously that does bring that that broad customer base where some people. Um, book a stay because the the rooms are beautiful and then the and there the sort of the the area, the area is amazing so and then maybe you don't know there's actually a restaurant there um so it, it's definitely having that that balance um and and we do that by by keeping our food um simple but using those amazing ingredients and using them well and having them to uh, recognizable um, also, we, we have a tasting menu and a la carte menu, so we can sort of go a little bit more crazy on the on the tasting menu because we know people who are who are willing to sort of commit that that amount of time to dining are more keen to try some of those things. So that's where we'll have um, some slightly more out there ingredients and some techniques on. Um, and with the a la carte, we're just trying to keep it really simple and said like delicious um, and using local things. So we, we've got a an amazing dish is about to come off the menu actually, but it's um, some local uh, Wessex saddleback pork loin. So a sort of heritage breed, so much slower growing, really amazing fat content and just really tender meat. And, and we sort of treat the loin with, with a bit, a, bit of, a bit of sous vide and we roll in some porcini powder and sear it off. So it's, we're trying to just make the best pork loin that someone's tasted because people always cook pork loin at home and ruin it because um, it's quite hard to cook and it can be quite dry. So it's it's almost like a it's it's a easy win for us if we can cook it and we can nail it. Um, and then we just got some some kale that we just sweat off, some local mushrooms from Nara, and um, and a little broth. So like really simple, but just really highlighting the the, the amazing local ingredients. And I and I don't I don't see how anyone could not enjoy that dish as pick as you might be it's it's simple there's there's beautiful ingredients and they're cooked well so as long i think as long as you stick to those core aspects then people should be able to access your food no matter if they're there just to relax or if they want to come and spend two and a half hours doing a degustation and, and match wines and and hang around afterwards so so as long as it's kind of kept um in the context of good food, I guess. Mm. Well, how do you feel that regional New South Wales is going? I mean, you mentioned you've closed one restaurant um, due to the pandemic um, and you're there a couple of hours out of Sydney. Uh, 
you know, how is it feeling? You know, people are talking about staffing, especially in regional areas, being really tough. Um, yeah, what's the landscape like, in your opinion? I think it's it's it's, it's double edged right now because we're getting more. We're getting sort of the limelight shone on us more, and it's great to see. Um, you know, good food and publications looking outside the cities more, which has sort of always been our bugbear in regional, especially in Wollongong, being sort of so close to Sydney, we, we almost get overlooked for not being regional enough. Um, but uh, so, so it, it is amazing to see that the South Coast getting a sort of a light shone there. Um, but then there's, so, you know, we, in last summer, last two summers, we've been, been so busy. And if it wasn't for um, sort of extra lockdowns and restrictions, we, we'd be, be you know calling this the sort of great resurgence of, of of regional dining but then we've got the staffing issue which is not going away anytime soon it seems um is is get becoming almost a parody of whenever you see anyone from hospitality industry and who've been to a couple of award things it, it's it's straight on the staff question and that now people it's just kind of like staff yeah bad okay cool let's talk about something else um because it's it's becoming like we're just having the same conversation of staff's hard day eh? and yeah oh god I can't get, could do some more staff you like get staff and that's, that's the, the whole conversation so I think we're all getting a bit bored of it now um, so that that's tough um, it's going to be tough for some time I don't see any short term solutions to it so it's it's about working other ways and, and we're sort of putting a lot of energy into our training um, and and expecting us to have you know, quite young staff coming in with, with no hospitality experience. So really starting from the beginning and starting from the real basics and, and not assuming people have that basic hospitality knowledge of, you know, this is where your knife goes, this is where your fork goes. We, we've got to sort of start from the, really from the ground up and, and get those sort of training schedules in, in into action. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 it is what it is, but um, we've been pretty lucky that we've managed to keep a, a really tight, um, core in the kitchen especially um we've had people come and go but when the people have kind of kind of come and gone they've they've gone to some really good restaurants in sydney or canberra so we can't be too too mad at that that we're you know sending people on to to sort of uh to other other great restaurants Mm. And you, you mentioned that you weren't expecting to spend all this time in Australia when you first got here. I mean, do you reckon we've got you for good now? I mean, would you consider? Yeah, I yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, in the context now, I only spent four years cooking in the UK. So, uh, and it took me so long to just to remember to say eggplant and not, <laughs> not, um, Oh, what do you, I, guess, I can't remember the other way anymore. Oh, that's um, awesome. You're oh, aubergine-free zone. Aubergine, yeah. I was, I was like, bizarre. I was thinking all like courgette to zucchini. So it took me so long to do that. And I remember coming here and being like, oh, all the fish is different as well. I'm like, what is a barramundi? Like, so I feel like I've, I've, uh, I've taken the time to to learn all these things now. If I went back, it would just be, I'd just be a 35-year-old didn't know what an aubergine was. So, so I think I'm stuck in it. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, I mean, you know, we, I guess we're not, we won't, bang on about staff because everybody is but it is unless you have any solutions uh, no no you're the one you you need this you need to give me the solutions so we can share it but um i mean i suppose that aside if we can put it aside how are you feeling about the summer to come yeah good um it's the obviously winter regional for everyone is a bit quieter so is that that time to you know, it's time everyone kind of takes a bit of holidays and, and try and relax, but then you, you try and focus, especially being regional, especially with accommodation. We know that 
from November onwards, we're, we're pretty much full in the villas. That means we're going to be pretty much full or we are going to be full in, in the, in the restaurant. Um, so like I said, it's, it's putting those things into place now with the you know, systems procedures, um, the training of the staff, um, and, and just getting everything ready, you know, getting our menus ready, getting our producers, even the logistics of getting produce to a regional restaurant is, is, is hard in itself. There's, you know, only certain people who will deliver down to us and we've got to balance between you know, local suppliers and the sort of bigger suppliers who can cater for the, the size of restaurant we are. So there's, there's all sorts of little, little nitty gritty things that the, um, the, the things that actually make up a chef's job, not the, the sort of master chef view of, of getting a box of produce magically appear on your, on your bench every day and making dishes. So it's all those little nitty gritty parts, which, um, which is, is not the most fun part, but it, it means you can you can run your restaurant in the busy period and, and enjoy it and, and, and produce nice food. So it's just all that planning right now. But yeah, we're, we're really excited. Um, Ever-changing landscape, especially with uh, international travel opening now. Um, we'll see what, what difference that makes with domestic tourism. And then we'll see what um, international travel we're going to have into Australia as well. So sort of a lot of pressure on 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 local tourism to really to really push that and to um and to make sure that we're, we're getting we're getting people into the area um and then we'll do our best to feed them yeah well last summer just got so messy that i really yeah. look forward to something just a little bit closer to normal if there is ever normal again yeah um, just be a bit of consistency of, of you know not not worrying about having might having to cancel something i think that was everyone's worry it was very last minute and we, we were going from 10 bookings to 50 bookings in 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 a, in a day last summer from memory yeah it was a, it was a problematic blur um yeah. simon let's finish can you tell us what you love about what you do what do you love about being a chef um i, I really love so much about being a chef and um and then uh, then also i love to complain about <laughs> being a chef as well um but i i, just, I think it's such a, it's such an amazing job i i really well, you get some chefs who kind of want to be out in the kitchen by the time they're 50. I'm like, I hope I'm still in the kitchen at 50. Like, I, I want to still be on the pans. That's still like my favorite thing to do. It's like, it's to just, just do do a do a busy night um, cooking. So like, yeah, just being being like that close knit, constantly learning. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm super curious and I, I always want to learn stuff. I'm always reading stuff. So, and it's never ending between between food and and the wine side of what I do as well. It, it's there's always something to learn. Um, the, the the closeness with with your staff members, seeing you know your staff members grow and going from someone who you know can't peel a potato to them running a section just gives you such a kind of um, a blast of pride. Um, the I, I like the hours like i'm a night owl so i so i like i like being up late um you know i, I like the franticness of it i like, like solving problems there's, there's so much i love about being a chef it's, it's really is i think the, the most amazing um occupation that, that gives you so much and it's 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 amazing to see that people in within the industry are really trying to push to make it even better as well and to try and really kind of file off those those bad points that we've had with, with sort of underpayment and um and, and overworking and things like that so i mean and that's an amazing thing to see as well i don't see too many other industries advocating for themselves um quite so much from from things you know from you know, gr groups pushing 
uh, more awareness of, of sexual harassment and and, and, um, and harassment in the industry to underpayment, and that that all kind of comes from within. So that gives me a massive sense of pride as well of of our own industry kind of taking responsibility and and pushing forward. And I, I really don't see that in other industries. Yeah, I love it. So so many um, threads that um, you're yeah hanging onto and running with. Um, so great, uh, Simon. It's been yeah a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming along for a chat, and yeah, wish you a great summer in Bangalore. Awesome. Good. Hope to see you down there on time. Definitely. Thanks, Danny. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.